You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Well, good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, I've known Rick before he was married to Jane. So uh, watched them have their kids and all. It's great. And I'll, uh, Rick, make you feel how old you are. Uh, my son, Jesse, just turned 38. <laughs> so... Anyway, welcome from uh, Calvary in uh, Santa Barbara, and um, let's pray as we uh, go into our message this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the precision of your word. Lord, it is not a, um, a close match, or it's got a few things that sort of line up. Lord, it is incredible the way the detail of your prophetic word is so clear on every point, and that, Lord, you, in fact, did, in fact, come to fulfill all the law. And Father, I pray that as we look at your crucifixion, the gift of your uh, sacrifice for our sins, Lord, we would see beyond just uh, the basics and we'd recognize how much is there in terms of fulfillment of prophecy in every detail. So bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So my website is Newton, FIO. FIO started, figure it out, started as a men's Bible study at Calvary uh, Santa Barbara back in 2000, 22 years ago. And uh, it was a men's study at first. The last, uh, oh, 10 or 11 years, it's been a wide open teaching on Monday nights. I teach in the sanctuary. Right now we're going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And um, so if you want to see all kinds of resources and stuff, you just go to Newton, FIO for figure it out. NewtonFIO.com is where everything's at. And um, this morning, we're going to take a look at a topic that I really feel very passionate about. Um, How many times have you ever been around an Easter service or Easter time, and it's all about bunnies and little Easter baskets and chicks, and people are all kind of just melding all kinds of things into Easter? And uh, over the last several decades, I have just devoted myself to taking a look at how prophecy is so incredibly precise and that, in fact, the scriptures, if you really dig in and know where to look, is so confirming on multiple levels that, in fact, uh, Jesus' death on the cross, well, yes, at a very basic level, he died for our sins, and he rose according to the scriptures. But let's not forget that he was fulfilling so many aspects of the law and so many prophecies from the Old Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is defined as one thing. If anybody asks you, hey, what's the gospel? The definition is in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Everything about the gospel is he died according to the scriptures. That means according to the Psalms, the prophets, the Torah, and he rose according the same way. Um, Good Friday and Easter... They're not even mentioned in the Bible. So if somebody tries to peg you on that one, say, oh, I concede. Yeah, there's nothing about Good Friday. There's nothing about Easter in the Bible. But there is an incredible narrative that comes through as you go through the Gospels and as you read uh, Paul's commentary and you take a look at what is in the Old Testament. And we see that the process by which Jesus comes in is um, so fine-tuned that some people actually think that many of the scriptures were written after the fact because they're too precise. Uh, Our theme verse for Figure It Out for the last 28 years has been uh, Proverbs 14.8. For the wisdom of the prudent is to figure it out. 
And I always tell people, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to just say, you know what, I'm going to get into the Word. I'm going to check this out and see if, in fact, this is true. Uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul says, you know, there were some, uh, this is uh, Luke writing, he says there were some believers in the city of Berea who were more noble-minded than those who were up in Thessalonica. Because what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to see if, in fact, the stuff that was being preached to them was true. And that's what I'd hope you always be, a good Berean. Get into the Word, take a look at it, and that's what we're going to do today. So Exodus 12 tells us all about Passover. And interestingly, you know, the, the blood goes on the doorpost and the lintels. Uh, we're told in Leviticus 17, the life is in the blood. We're told in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And there are these three feasts of the Jews in the spring. The first one is the Feast of Passover. It's on the 14th day of Nisan. The next day, the 15th day, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then two days after that, on the 17th day of Nisan, is the Feast of First Fruits. Now, many will tell you, oh, they just have to do with Israel in the Old Testament, and after Jesus came, that's the end of it. Um, those are all actually prophetic, and they're all fulfilled by Jesus in his crucifixion on Calvary and his resurrection. And I always point my favorite verse uh, for what I do with Figure It Out is Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. Paul says everything that happened in the past did so for our benefit and that they are all in the scriptures foreshadows pointing to the substance of which is Jesus Christ. That means literally, as you go through the Old Testament, as you go through the Torah, the Psalms, and the prophets, it's all pointing to one thing, Jesus Christ. In fact, when they were challenging Jesus about, we understand you've come to abolish the law, what did he say to them? I haven't come to abolish the law. In fact, I've come to do what? Fulfill it, every aspect of it. And he said, in fact, not one brushstroke or dotting of an I or crossing of a T is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. Now, I was here in December. I was greatly uh, blessed to come up. A little chillier that day. We had frost on the uh, grass and everything, but uh, we went ahead and looked at the birth of Jesus on the Feast of Yom Teruah, Feast of Blowing Trumpets. If you were here, hopefully that was a blessing to you, and maybe you got a chance to get a copy of the book on that same topic. Today, we're going to take a look at now a different feast, the Feast of Passover. And Passover is interesting because my premise in the book is that there is so much precision. We're going to look at nine clues, 20 minutes on each one. So we'll be here a while. Okay, no. Well, we're going to look at nine clues this morning, and you can read all the details in the book, but I'm going to cover each one just briefly so that you'll see there, this is not one verse or just some innuendo or kind of a, well, you're kind of doing something with this passage here. No, there are nine solid evidences that Jesus was crucified on the late afternoon of Passover, as all the other lambs were being sacrificed for the Passover feast, Jesus was on the cross, dying as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, dying for you and me as a fulfillment of the Passover lamb that we saw in the Old Testament. One of the great resources out there, you can take a look at it yourself sometime, it's mentioned in the book, is you can go online, it's a free PDF, and it's a book from 1894 by Sir Robert Anderson. He was the uh, uh, senior investigator at Scotland Yard in London. And he got together with the Astronomer Royal 
out there in Greenwich, just outside of uh, London, where the prime meridian goes right through, and that's where time begins longitudinally and so forth. And they sat down for almost nine months and went through the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 to find out, in fact, how could, how could the actual precision of Christ the Messiah coming into Jerusalem be reconciled with this amazing prophecy from Daniel? The angel comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, there have been seven sevens and 62 sevens. The term is Shabuah in the Hebrew, means a seven-year period of time. We have in English decades for 10 years. The Jews, of course, had seven years of Shabuah. And there are seven sevens and 62 sevens designated for your people Israel until Messiah the King. And taking that passage, Sir Robert Anderson and the head of the uh, Astronomer Royale there at uh, Greenwich meticulously went through all the documentation they had, the calendars adjusted for leap years and all these things, and they said, Daniel's prophecy said that from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens until Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King. So they went through and took a look at how that was broken down. Turns out to be 173,880 days. And they went through the calendars, put everything in, adjusted for leap years and so forth, and they came out and said, what's this thing that starts it? And what starts it is there's going to be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree, we now know, even secular historians will agree, came from Artaxerxes, Longimanus, in 445 BC, May 15th. Excuse me, March 15th. And when he gave that decree to who? Nehemiah? He said, you can go and here's letters, you'll get the tools you need and so forth, the materials. Go and restore and rebuild, not the temple, but Jerusalem's walls. To restore and build Jerusalem, it was given to him by Artaxerxes, and that happens in Nehemiah chapter 2. They went ahead and said, gee, so from March 15th to 445 BC, let's actually count out all those days. And that's what they spent all their time in. No computers, no calculators, just an abacus and a pen and pencil and things like that. And they came out to April 6th of 32 AD. Turns out it's a Sunday. Turns out it's also the 10th of Nisan. If you have a Jewish background, what's that? That's the beginning of Passover week. That means Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Sunday, April 6th, the 10th of Nisan at the beginning of Passover. And he came in riding on a majestic white horse with his sword and his crown as a conquering king. No. At his first coming, he came on the colt, the foal of a donkey, meek and lowly to do what? Throw out the Romans? No, to go to the cross, his choice to go to the cross and die for your sins and for my sins. We call it Palm Sunday now. In fact, when he comes ready up to Jerusalem, his disciples want him to go in two days early when they're in Bethany. And you know what he tells them? It's not yet my time. There's a little hint that he knows the exact time he's supposed to come in. April 6, 32 AD, he then rides in, and people start putting their cloaks down, and they're laying down their palm branches, and they start quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's always been known as the Messianic Psalm. So, of course, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they're all going ballistic. They're going, hey, tell your, all these people to stop chanting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's reserved for Messiah. And Jesus says to them, I'll tell you this. 
If everybody screaming out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, stop saying that and was quiet, the stones would start to call out because this is my day. It's the exact day spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what what should. So he comes into Jerusalem and begins Passover week. So picture for a second, not days like we have here where the morning is, you know, at 7 a.m. and then we go through the day and it ends in the evening and you go to bed and it switches at midnight when you're sleeping. Remember in the Jewish calendar, the day begins at sunset and that's the beginning of the new day. So it's morning of a new day when you're in the darkness of evening that we would consider our evening time. Then you have overnight into the next morning. Now you're in like midday. And then as the day wanes on, it comes into the late afternoon. That's actually the tail end of each day until sunset again. So on, on um, April 6th, we're now on, on the Israeli calendar, on the, on the Jewish calendar, it's the 10th of Nisan. We're told that in Exodus chapter 12, that when the lambs are set aside to be examined for how many days? Four days to see if any of the little lambs for Passover have any blemish in them. Jesus comes in on the 10th of Nisan. Passover is going to be on the 14th of Nisan, four days later. And as you read the gospel, what happens to him for four days? He gets examined in the temple by all the religious leaders, and they find no blemish in him. He gets grilled on all kinds of topics as you read that. So the Lamb of God is literally Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. When he comes down to the Jordan River, he has just turned 30 years old. Numbers chapter 4, verse 3 says that age 30 is the acceptable age for a man to go into ministry full-time. When he comes down to the Jordan, he's been in Nazareth for 30 years. And we sometimes glance over there. Oh, yeah, Jesus was up there for 30 years. Then he started his ministry. Can you imagine you're, you're, you're divine and yet you've laid that aside willingly to live as a man for 30 years. Joseph's my supposed father. I was born of Mary. We're told in the Gospels they had four other sons and at least two daughters. The sons are all named, one of which is James, Simon, Jonas, and then Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. And then we also see he has sisters. And he's living up there, working as a carpenter, waiting, in my opinion, for the precision of the word, because he came to fulfill how much of the word? All of it. So in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, he's waiting till he's 30. Now, his, his second cousin, John the Baptist, born of Mary and Zacharias, Mary is, uh, excuse me, Martha. Martha is Mary's cousin. He's born six months before Jesus. So he's already down in March, baptizing people at the, at the Jordan River. And six months later, coming out, of, coming out of Nazareth, is Jesus. Now, how does he begin his ministry? Well, they have a little synagogue in Nazareth. This is a podunk little country town. And so their synagogue is probably like a 10 by 10. And they just gather in there. And they don't have Hebrew scriptures. That's, 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 a, that's a big, big deal to have those. They probably have the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament which has been around for about 300 years since uh, the third century BC, commissioned by Alexandria in Alexandria. And so they, they say, hey, why don't you come up and read this morning, young man? Yeah, interesting, I love his name, Yehoshua. That's how you say Jesus in, in Hebrew. It means what? God is salvation. Pretty cool name, Yehoshua, God is salvation. 
hey, Yehoshua, why don't you come up and read? And he opens up, and he's in what we would refer to today as Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes and reads and reads about how he's coming to bind up the brokenhearted and to provide healing and so forth. And then he stops, and he just closes it. The next place it goes is to declare the day of vengeance of the Lord. That's coming when? At his second coming, when he comes to judge. But in his first coming, he comes to bind up the brokenhearted. So he reads that, and he makes a statement to his local crowd. Maybe, I don't know, 60, 50 people in there, maybe less. And he rolls up the scroll, and he says, I tell you this day, this scripture was fulfilled before your eyes. Whoa! Who do you think you are? Can you imagine how the people looked and said, aren't you, do you work in the carpenter shop with your dad? You know, I mean, you're saying this from Isaiah was fulfilled in our eyes today? Oh, they wanted to stone him. It's blasphemous. So that's how he begins his ministry. Not a big following, not a lot of likes on Instagram or on Facebook or anything, not a lot of people following him on social media. Heads down to the Jordan River and his second cousin, John, has been there wearing camel fur eating locusts and wild honey, and they've been coming out to the Jordan daily, all the different religious leaders, and what do they keep asking him? Are you the Messiah? What does he say? I'm not. Are you Elijah? No. Are you Moses? No. He says, I am the one spoken of who says, I'm coming to prepare the way for the Lord. One's coming after me whose sandal I'm not even worthy to unloosen. Second cousin comes down to the Jordan six months after he begins his ministry, and he points to his second cousin. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that's not a euphemism. That's not just a nickname. He's prophetically saying, this is the Passover Lamb. That's amazing. So let's do a quick overview of these nine clues from the Scriptures. We'll just go right through them. They're all in the book, chapter by chapter. You can take a look in, in your own time. But I want to encourage you this morning that when you read the gospel message and you read about Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins, um, it is not just a, you know, a cute little story. It's not a myth. Remember, this didn't happen in Shangri-La or Middle Earth or in Atlantis. Okay, this happened in Judea a historical location when the Romans were there, when Herod was king. He's not even a Jew, but he's king at that time. And as you go through and see this, Pontius Pilate, up until 1961, everybody made fun of the fact that the gospel quoted this guy named Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect over Judea at that time. And then, of course, what did they find? They found in Caesarea Maritima a giant stone for some games when they were doing excavation. And it states his name, and he's the prefect over Judea. And so this is historical. This is real. He's come in on April 6, 32 AD. He's 30 years old when he starts his ministry in 29. He's now 32 and a half years old. Uh, John tells us that there were three Passovers in his gospel. He mentions three Passovers that Jesus went to. The first one when he was 30, going on 31. The second when he was 31, going on 32. And the last one is the Passover he's come to do what? Fulfill. He's going to fulfill Passover. Now, Passover works how? You take blood and you sprinkle it on the doorpost and lintel with hyssop, 
and the blood comes from a little lamb who's been examined for four days and has no blemish. All symbolic and a foreshadow of what? The real lamb of God who is still to come, and he is actually there now. So let's go through nine quick um, clues from the scriptures. First one's in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus actually says this to his disciples. You know the Passover is coming in two days, and the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion at that time. So Jesus' own words say that Passover is coming in two days. That's when I will be crucified. Okay, so number one comes from Matthew chapter 26. Clue number two. In John 13, he makes a statement to his disciples that now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come. Now picture for a moment Passover. It's sunset on the 13th of Nisan. And as soon as the sun sets, it begins the 14th day of Nisan. It's now Passover. It's about six o'clock on our clocks, like we would say. It's sunset. And going through to the next day, to the next sunset, is the end of Passover. In the book of Exodus and in Leviticus, it's very clear how Passover is to happen. You examine the, the little lambs for four days to see there's no blemish. And then in the twilight of Passover, which would be what? The tail end of Passover, which would be that late afternoon the next day, that's when the Passover lambs will be killed. And that's when they will be uh, sacrificed. That's when the blood will be spilled. And then the, fat, the feast of Passover will be eaten before sunset. It says it's eaten during twilight. Well, when they go in to prepare Passover in Jerusalem, it's just after sunset. It's the beginning of Passover. What's the first meal of Passover? Well, it's not the one with the lamb. That's coming at the end of Passover. Everybody with me? So when you start Passover, think of breakfast as right after sunset. It's the early Passover. The thing you have is unleavened bread and wine with some bitter herbs to start off Passover. That is the Last Supper. That evening, Jesus breaks the matzah, passes it out. It's unleavened. Takes the cup, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. So the Last Supper was not eating the Passover meal. In fact, if it had been, the gospel record would be full of Jesus making all kinds of statements about how, oh, this lamb we're eating, that's symbolic of me giving my life. And so, hey, there's none of that. They're just having the basic start to Passover, which is some, some unleavened bread and the cup. And Jesus makes a statement in John 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew his hour was coming. Before Passover, okay? Third clue. Also in John 13, around chapter, uh, verses 21 to 29, it says that Judas, who's about to betray him, gets up while they're talking and is ready to leave early. And Jesus says this, one of you is going to betray me. And as Judas gets up to leave, he says, what you do, do it quickly. And John, who wrote the gospel, said the disciples all supposed that he was talking to Judas about going to do what? Go get all the supplies we'll need for the Passover meal that's coming the next day. Because he was the one that carried the money box for the group. It's actually stated right there in John 13. So as Judas gets up to go betray him, all the disciples are clueless. Typically they are, aren't they? When you read through, they, a lot of stuff just goes right, right over their head. I'd probably be the same way in that day, right? And as Judas leaves, 
He says, quote, they, they supposed because he had the money box, he went to buy the things needed for the feast. That would be the lamb and all the stuff for that meal they'd have at the end, the twilight of Passover the next day. Clue number four. We're told three different places it was the day of preparation that Jesus went to the cross. When he went to the cross on Passover, he's being examined, Caiaphas, Annas, Pontius Pilate, then they send him to Herod. He won't even speak with Herod. This drives Herod nuts. Herod sends him back to Pontius Pilate, and ultimately they declare him for a crucifixion. That's all happening the day of preparation. It's mentioned three times in John chapter 19. In fact, later on, when the bodies are still on the cross, the three men who were crucified together, Jesus and these two criminals, the, the religious leaders are so concerned about keeping the law that they say, we can't have dead bodies hanging on the cross on the Feast of Preparation. And because the Sabbath is coming, we've got to get them off the cross. We can, typically, somebody crucified might hang on the cross for as, as many as 45 to 60 hours before they died. So we can't have that. So a lot of people made the mistake for centuries that when they said the Sabbath is approaching, they assumed it was the regular weekly Sabbath that would start on Friday night and end on Saturday evening. But what are the three feasts in the spring? Well, the first one is Passover. Then on the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're told by John that it was a special high day, which are described in the Torah. There are four special Sabbaths during the year, one of which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So picture, Passover's first. The next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a Sabbath. As soon as that ends, what comes up next at Friday at sunset? The regular weekly Sabbath. And that goes till Saturday sunset. Can you get a sense as why they didn't go to the tomb until Sunday morning? Okay, they, had, they were not allowed to because everything was a Sabbath followed by another Sabbath. The preparation of the lambs is happening as per Exodus chapter 12. There's a special way that you actually cut the throat, empty out the blood for the hyssop, which is going to go on the doorpost and lintel, hang up the lamb and drain it. It's all described there in Exodus. And then the lamb is not to be boiled. It's supposed to be roasted. There's a certain way to do that. It's all described. This gets us to then clue number five or evidence number five, this special high day. John says the Sabbath approached and it was a high day. Leviticus chapter 23 tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a special high day. So picture, it's Wednesday evening, the 13th on our calendar, but from Wednesday evening until Thursday evening is Passover. From Thursday evening to Friday evening is a special high day, Sabbath, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And from the uh, Friday evening until Saturday evening is the regular weekly Sabbath. Can you picture those in a row? So Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the regular weekly Sabbath. The next day after is the Feast of First Fruits. We'll get to that in a moment. Number six, when Jesus is being tried overnight, which is an illegal trial, uh, why is it that the Sanhedrin didn't just pull him in, convict him based on the law of Moses of blasphemy, and then take him out and stone him, which is how they would do capital punishment? Why didn't they do that? All of their sovereignty had been removed from them as a nation by Rome. 
In fact, Judea was a little subsection of a thing called the Syrian province. It was not a nation. That's why it's so funny that, <laughs> so funny that Herod is so bent on being called the king of the Jews. You know, he's got that title basically from the Roman Senate. He bought it with money, and they've ultimately voted him in. He's not even a Jew. He's an Edomite. He's an Edomian. And can you understand why when Jesus was born and the Magi came in, I told you this last December, and they asked the question of him, where's he who's born king of the Jews? That would not settle well very well with Herod. He thought he was the king of the Jews. But the Sanhedrin had no authority to execute capital punishment. They had to go what? They had to go to Pontius Pilate. And they bring him in. And can you imagine Pilate? He says, what's he done? Oh, he's blasphemed against our law. Um, Pilate must have just been like, oh, gosh. You guys are bugging me on this, this carpenter from Nazareth. Okay, he's, he's blasphemed your law. You guys deal with it, okay? Yeah, but we can't. We can't. He, he deserves death. He goes, for blasphemy? Because he said he was the son of God? Okay. So there's this whole weird thing going on where Pilate doesn't want anything to do with it. In fact, his wife is having some dreams, and she's come and told him what? Don't have anything to do with this man because it's not going to be good. And he finally, they finally take him from the high priest Annas, and then they take him in to Caiaphas, who then sends him to Pontius Pilate, who sends him over to Herod, and he won't even speak to Herod. And then they send him back to Pontius Pilate, and it's now about 6 a.m. in the morning. And they're inside the Roman Praetorium. Anybody been to Jerusalem and seen the Roman Praetorium right there by the... Uh, uh, the Antonian Fortress and so forth. Well, while he's there, Peter is right outside, and he's kind of warming himself by a fire. It's about 6 a.m. It's about the middle of Passover, because Passover started the last night, right, at sunset. And now about, it's like the middle of Passover. It's 6 a.m. And Jesus has been up all night. Think about this. He's been awake since they took him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been farmed around to five different venues over the evening, now he's in the Roman Praetorium in front, of, in front of Pilate, and Pilate's just sitting there going, oh, gosh, you, you're back. Outside, the, Peter's warming himself by a fire, and a bunch of women and some other people start saying, aren't you a guy, for, aren't you Galilean? Aren't you one of the guys that was with him? And they go through this whole thing, and he gets so unnerved three different times, he denies he even knows him. The last time it says he was cussing and swearing that he never heard about him. And then what does he hear? The rooster crows. And what did the Lord say to him? You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. They're outside the praetorium, and I love what John writes in his gospel, John 18, 28. The religious leaders would not enter the Roman praetorium, so they would not be defiled, and they could still eat the Passover. Another great clue. That means that the Passover meal, the final meal, has not yet been eaten. That means it's still early morning, sun, sunrise, and the meal will be eaten later that day, right before sunset at the end of Passover, during the preparation of the lambs. Do you realize the religious leaders are saying, we can't go in there with, with him. We'll be defiled. And the Old Testament law in the Torah says, we have to go through a whole series of ceremonial washings over the course of 24 to 36 hours before we'll be cleansed. Because we've been around what? Gentiles. Don't get any Gentiles on you. You know, talk about, you know, the COVID stuff, right? I mean, yeah, little Gentile stuff, you know, right there. I mean, so they're saying we can't go in. 
we haven't yet eaten the Passover. Gives us another wonderful clue. Peter's denial was pretty straight up. It's around probably 6 a.m. around that, around that campfire. Jesus was probably arrested right around 11.30 p.m. the night before in the garden. Accusations started in front of Annas probably between midnight and 12.30 a.m. Then he sent to Caiaphas from probably about 1 to 1.30. Then the full Sanhedrin from 2 to 2.30 a.m. maybe. Initial audience with Pilate around 3 in the morning. How are you guys at 3 in the morning for a little uh, uh, grilling from a local uh, Roman procurator, right? Then before Herod, maybe 4 to 4.30 in the morning. Back to Pilate. Pilate convicts him at about probably between 6 and 7 a.m., has him flogged, and then has Jesus carry his cross, which eventually they, they conscript a guy named Simon the Cyrene to carry it the rest of the way to Golgotha between probably 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning. And Mark tells us very clearly in his gospel, Mark 15, 25, another great clue. Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Now, how do we think of time today? Everybody has on some kind of a watch or your phone, and we're right down to what? The minute. You ever ask somebody what time it is lately in the last several years? What time is it? It's 3.39, you know. Back in the old days of wristwatches, oh, it's about quarter to four, right? Back in those days, there were only a couple things you said. If it was dawn, it was what? The beginning of the day. Three hours in, it was the third hour, what we would call around 9 a.m. The sixth hour is right around midday. That's when people kind of had lunch. It was the hottest point of the day. The ninth hour would be three in the afternoon. And then at sunset, it's what? The beginning of a new day. So there's the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Well, uh, he tells us he was crucified at the third hour. So Jesus is on the cross now at 9 a.m., Clue number eight, when they go to the tomb, we're told that in Luke chapter 22, uh, they were not able to go until Sunday morning on our calendar, which would be the Feast of First Fruits that started right after the regular Sabbath ended on Saturday night at sunset. Everybody with me on that? Passover, Feast of, Fir uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, regular weekly Sabbath, that ends Saturday at sunset, pitch dark. The women can't go out. They're concerned about rolling the stone. They said, we'll go in the morning at first light. And all three gospels, the synoptic gospels say that they went to the tomb at first light at dawn. That's the beginning of the day, the sunrise. And they go on the feast of first fruits. In fact, Matthew 28 says it was after the Sabbath on the first day of the week as it began to dawn. And finally, I'll close with this one. The greatest evidence on top of everything else is Jesus' own testimony. He was sitting talking with the religious leaders, and they're all just pestering him, and they're finally saying, hey, Rabbi, do a sign for us. Do a sign, as if he's like, you know, a magician, or he's like, you know, do magic tricks or something. Like They've heard all about he's, he's healed lepers, he raised people from the dead, he's, he's healed crippled individuals, a blind man can see now, and all these things. They're going, do a sign for us. And part of this comes from the fact that Paul reminds us that Greeks seek after wisdom, but the Jews seek after signs. Because what's their history with Yahweh in the wilderness? Signs. Parting the Red Sea, pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, manna when you need food, touching a rock and water comes out, sign after sign. It's all about signs with them. And they say, do a sign for us. And Jesus looks at him and he says, 
This is pretty intense language. All three Gospels record it. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. So Jesus, how do you really feel about that? Right? Okay. And he says to them, I'm only going to give you one sign will be given to you. You guys, you guys know the Old Testament. He says to these scholars, these rabbis. And he says, the sign of Jonah is the only sign you'll have. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, for many of us, I know I grew up as a Presbyterian in New Jersey, and um, my memory of the story of Jonah was closer to the story from Disney of Pinocchio. That uh, Remember Monstro, the whale? Uh, he opens his mouth inside. There's light in there. Uh, the water's nice and calm. There's a little raft. Uh, you have a little fire going, Geppetto's in there with, uh, with Pinocchio and so forth. And I only understood that, you know, it sounds like a myth that, you know, Jonah was in the whale and how did he see? He must have had some light and maybe he had a little magna flashlight with him or something like that. And he, of course, was hanging out and so forth. But if you go back and read the book of Jonah, figure it out is all about, for the wisdom of the prudent is for those who will figure it out. If you go and read Jonah, Jonah actually says in, the, in that writing, he went overboard, down, was wrapped around seaweed, swallowed salt water, and he died. He drowned. And it says he went to Sheol, the abode of the dead. That means when he died, the fish that came and swallowed him that the Lord provided was not somebody that had, you know, like Monstro the whale. We have like, you know, 4,500 square feet of living space, lighting, uh, a little bit of food, a fire, campfire going and stuff like that. And so, no, 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 this was, he was just swallowed for the sole purpose of what? Just preserving his body until he could be resurrected. What did Jesus say about Jonah? That's the only sign you'll have for as Jonah was three days and three days, three nights and three nights in the belly of the fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, dead and will be resurrected even as Jonah was dead and was resurrected after three days and three nights. In fact, the Jews understood, when does the body start to decay in the tomb? The fourth day, that's when it begins. When, they, when he comes and sees Lazarus in the tomb at Bethany, he says, roll away the stone. And the classic line was what? Well, he's already been dead four days, Jesus. If we roll the stone away, whew, it's not going to be good. See, the goal is in these tombs, you would put the body in there, and over the course of the first three days, it was cool, not a lot of decay begins, but on the fourth day, the decay begins and the stench. That's why they use the, the different uh, pine and frankincense and myrrh and things like that as ways to provide the embalming. And then when the flesh and everything deteriorates over the course of about six or seven weeks, they come in and collect the bones and they put them in a box called an ossuary. And then they go bury that box. And the tomb is available for what? The next person who they want to to have them die and so forth. Jesus is in the grave for three days and three nights because the Psalms say, I will not allow my beloved to undergo decay. Another prophetic statement, only three days and three nights. Jonah is the sign, the prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus would do in the tomb, three days and three nights. Interestingly, Jesus' own personal testimony is pretty clear. And this is how I'll close this one in terms of precision. Growing up as a Presbyterian in New Jersey, I did my Westminster Catechism at age 14, and I joined the church. And uh, one, of, one of the things that used to drive me crazy is I didn't understand Good Friday 
and Easter Sunday, because I always saw these verses that said Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. And I wasn't a math whiz, but let's do it together. Ready? It's Friday. Come on, it's Friday. That's day one. Overnight, Friday night, night one. Saturday is day two. And Sunday morning, they come to the tomb, and the grave is already open, and he's, boy, that just doesn't, where's the three days and three nights, right? And it was always told to me, well, we don't really know. Just let it, let it ride. Let's have this kid get a few demerits and take him away, okay? So, uh, you know, you're asking too many questions, young man, okay? And um, nobody had an answer for me because nobody had actually done any of the homework to really look in the scriptures. But what we're looking at now is Jesus is now what? He's crucified late afternoon, twilight of Passover, Thursday afternoon. That's his first day in the tomb. Overnight, Thursday night, night one, they have day one and night one. All day, the Feast of First Fruits, the next, excuse me, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, day two. Overnight, the next night, which would be our Friday night, night two. All day on Saturday, which would be what? Our third day, the regular Sabbath, up until the overnight of Friday night, into, excuse me, Saturday into Sunday morning. Three days and three nights. When they come to the tomb in the morning, the stone is already rolled away, and Jesus has already been resurrected. The precision of the scriptures is my strongest message of the morning. If you find yourself with a gnat in front of your eyes constantly, okay, you do this while you're speaking, okay? Um, the precision is that if you find yourself with something that doesn't, you know, I, I, gosh, I want to believe the scriptures on this one, but I'm not quite sure how this works. I always try to encourage people, well, do a little homework. Dig in a little bit. Take a little time and see if, in fact, God's word isn't incredibly precise right down to the day and the minute. And what I love is the Feast of First Fruits is the 17th day of Nisan. If you go back to the book of Genesis, the ark with Noah and his family in it came to rest on Ararat on the, take a wild guess, 17th day of Nisan. It's the anniversary of the new beginning after the judgment. That's the day that Jesus is raised. And what does Paul tell us about Jesus in his resurrection body? He has now become our first fruits of the resurrection. You know what that means? If you would like to know what your body is going to be like in your resurrected state, in your new body, take a look at Jesus after the resurrection. You're going to have the exact same body as he had. Think about that. Last little tidbit for you is as Jesus is on the cross, I have a more detail in the book, but uh, I always love the fact that uh, Pilate is trying to placate the crowd. So he takes a, a, a piece of parchment or something and he writes on it, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeum, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And it says in the scriptures that he wrote it in Latin, he wrote it in Greek, and he wrote it in Hebrew. And when you look in the book, you'll take a look at how he would have that out in Hebrew. And it would actually be what we would say is like a Y-H-W-H. That's how you would read from right to left. Yesu, Ha-Melech, the son. Ha-Nazarene, the Nazarite, Yeshua. And what you're looking at is it looks just like the spelling for Yahweh. 
and yet that's up above his head. And, what, and of course, you know, you can imagine the religious leaders going ballistic and they say, hey, hey, you can't put that up there. In fact, change it. Not that this is Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. And what does Pilate respond with? What I've written, I've written, staying up there. So think about that. The Son of God is on a cross, this terrible, terrible capital punishment developed by the Romans almost 200 years earlier. Painful, agonizing death. Jesus is hanging there. And again, I don't mean to be graphic, but remind yourself too that for the sake of decorum, most of our paintings, or virtually all our paintings of the artists and sculptors and stuff, Jesus has always a little loincloth on or a little bit of uh, towel around his, his uh, private parts and stuff. But remember, reading the historical record in the, in the of Roman crucifixion, you are naked. It, it is about shame and just putting you at the lowest possible position. You are publicly displayed bleeding, barely able to breathe, hanging there on the cross, completely naked, waiting for someone to die. It was the most excruciating capital punishment available. And yet that symbol, how many of you have a cross around your neck right now this morning? Anybody have a cross that you're wearing? Isn't that amazing? We, we now have that as a, a what? A, a symbol of what Jesus did on our behalf. He died on a Roman cross. Interestingly, they didn't want the bodies to be on the on the crosses coming into the Sabbath, not the regular Sabbath on Friday night, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread Sabbath, a special high day. So he says, go and break all their legs. See, if you're hanging there like that and your feet have a little, you know, a, a spike in them, you can still push up a little bit to get some air in your lungs as you're suffocating, hanging like this and bleeding. And they come to Jesus and what? He's already dead. To fulfill Psalm, 23 that says, Psalm 22 that says, not a single bone of his body will be broken. And then they look at him and they realize he's dead. And just to take care of things, they did what? He took his spear and he thrust it in his side right up through here in the pericardium, which is this sack that's been filled with water around his heart from this intense time on the cross. Since 9 a.m. that morning, it's now 3 in the afternoon. He's been there six hours. That pours out water. And they take his body down, Joseph Arimathea and, uh, and uh, uh, Nicodemus, and they bury him. So, as we close, what's the purpose of a message like this today? It's not Easter Sunday, right? But my desire is to say to you, the scriptures are incredibly precise. And that the birth of Jesus, which we looked at in December, is an incredible precision in the same way that Jesus is coming to fulfill Passover, the Old Testament Passover of coming out of Egypt with Moses, that's being fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. And Paul tells us in the New Testament several places, especially in the book of Hebrews, that Christ died what? Once for all, and he never again has to be sacrificed. His death was enough to take your sin and my sin. In fact, we're told he became sin on my behalf. As Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man will be raised up so that all who look to him will in fact be healed. That's pretty amazing. The, first, the Feast of First Fruits is all about our bodies 
The mortal is going to put on immortality. The perishable is going to put on imperishable. The corruptible is going to put on the incorruptible. The fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb is not just a euphemism. It's not just a cute little moniker that we use. Passover was designed to get a foreshadow of what was ultimately going to come, that the Son of God would truly give his life for our behalf once for all, covering our sin and giving us the promise of the Feast of First Fruits, that we will be like him in the resurrection. That's why we can say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Is he, again, just using some euphemisms or something? No, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah tells us. Jesus came for the specific purpose to die on the cross, John tells us in John chapter 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, Christ came to save sinners. And as I opened up with 1 Corinthians 15, what's the definition of the gospel? Jesus died according to the scriptures, and he was raised according to the scriptures. It's all a fulfillment. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident at all. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It's a place that we can go to, timeless, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word never changes. Lord, as the world around us is like shifting sand, and we have a lot of that going on today, Lord, we can put our feet on the word. It becomes like a rock. And while everything else is shifting, our feet are stable. Lord, we can go to your word and we can see the timeless truths that encourage us in our faith, Lord, that in fact you died for our sins according to the scripture. And Lord, your down payment on our ultimate redemption is you gave us your Holy Spirit as a down payment. Thank you, Lord. The Holy Spirit can now be in our lives every day, full-time dwelling in us. And through that, Lord, we can have the fruit of your Spirit evident in our lives, that we can have love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things that we are not, but you can live that through us, Lord. And so I pray for each person here, Lord, at Ranch Church. Father, I pray that you would give them a renewed desire to jump into your word, to understand it fully, and to really recognize, Lord, what you did for us on Calvary, Lord. You fulfilled Passover, and you made a way, Lord, for our sin to be covered once for all, that we might have new life in you. What an amazing story. Praise you and thank you for that wonderful gift, Lord. I pray that we would live now in the victory that we have, Lord, over death and over sin because of what you did on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. I pray a blessing on everybody here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.